The Liberals Gun Corner, a proud progeny of the Gun Rights Radio Network, hosted by Cowboy T, San Francisco liberal with a gun. This podcast is always available at www.liberalsguncorner.com, and you can email us at cowboyt at liberalsguncorner.com. Cowboy T here. Welcome to episode 48. We're going to talk about a couple of things here. First... There's a pair of pretty contentious political primaries going on. <laughs> well, how's that for a little alliteration, huh? <laughs> well, being a good liberal, I've been paying attention to both the Democratic and Republican debates. Folks, this stuff matters. We're choosing who's going to run for president of our nation. My conservative brothers and sisters are focusing a lot on the Republican debates, and that's a good thing. They should be. Since I'm a liberal, it's generally automatically assumed that I'm also a Democrat. Hmm, kind of interesting there. It's not true. I actually have no party affiliation whatsoever, but that's the assumption, apparently. Plus, we just had a very interesting Democratic debate in New York this last Friday. New York will be voting in its primary very soon. Tomorrow, matter of fact. Since New York's got so many delegates, the results there really do matter. Interestingly, this also kind of dovetails into the other thing we're going to be talking about here. You probably remember that I finally joined the M1 Garand Owners Club. Yeah, went down to the Civilian Marksmanship Program's facilities there in, uh, in Anniston, Alabama, and actually built my own rifle. And that means from the ground up, folks, strip bolt, strip receiver, uh, short chambered barrel, uh, trigger group, gas tube, op rod, all that stuff. It's basically the armorer's course. Well, last week, I got to finally break this thing in properly. Yeah. And, uh, and I, oh, guess what? I even took a couple of ladies with me to see how they'd like it. You'll hear about that. So, let's get to it, shall we? We'll begin with the Democratic debate last Friday. Folks, I sat through the entire thing. I'm talking start to finish. Someone, some kind soul, was good enough to post the whole thing on YouTube, so I watched it on Saturday. Folks, seriously, you got to love these tablet computers nowadays. You know, with a satellite internet, you can get any piece of information you want, anywhere you go, even the moon if you happen to be up there. It's great. So, that's one way you can watch the debate. And I'm going to tell you why I'm feeling the burn after having watched it. Folks, if you haven't figured it out yet, yes, I am a liberal. Died in the wool, avowed and proud liberal. The side effect of that is that, well, I'm not typically a fan of either the Democrats or the Republicans. Both parties, to me, are full of bought and paid for people who have, well, the interest of their big donors way in front of us, the people. You know, us who actually do the voting. Yeah. This has been going on for, for decades, folks. Political machines, backroom deals, congressional budgets chock full of corporate welfare to, to companies like Monsanto, um, DynCorp, Halliburton, and, and Bechtel, who definitely don't need it. Oh, and don't even get me started on you know, uh, Blackwater, uh, Z, uh, Academy, wh- whatever they're calling themselves now. Changed names so many doggone times you think it was fingernail polish. Sorry, I got off there for a moment. Back to the debate. I watched that debate. And here's what I saw. 
there were two people on that stage, former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton and current Senator Bernie Sanders. Mrs. Clinton's been part of the Democratic Party for decades. Senator Sanders has been an independent for those same decades. And what I saw was part of the establishment quote-unquote elite going up against a relative outsider. Now, they both got their little barbs in at each other for sure. Fortunately, I looked past the barbs and into the substance. For me, the substance is as follows. Let's take a look at who supports Mrs. Clinton. One, Wall Street banks. Two, big defense contractors. Three, white feminist groups. Four, black and Latino politicians. Uh, This, by the way, is a rather notable change from 2008 when blacks supported Barack Obama in huge numbers over Mrs. Clinton. We'll get to that later. And five, the Democratic Party machine. So who's supporting Senator Sanders? One, young people. Two, independents. Three, working class people. (laughs) Doesn't sound like much compared to who's supporting Mrs. Clinton now, does it? Sounds like all the big money's behind her. And that's a big part of why I'm feeling the burn, as they say on Twitter. Look who's supporting his opponent. The CEO of Verizon recently made some some pretty sharp ad hominem, uh, that is uh, personal, attacks against Senator Sanders. This is in response to an accusation by the senator of corporate greed. Well, that tells me right there that Sanders struck a chord, and a pretty resonant one at that. Anytime you resort to ad hominem attacks, folks, that tells me you've been busted. I would note that the CEO of Verizon supports Mrs. Clinton's candidacy. Well, Mr. Sanders pointed out something during that debate along these lines. When you take money from someone, you're beholden to them. That's just common sense, folks. New Yorkers especially know all about that. That's how the mafia works. And and the mafia has been in New York for, you know, God knows how long, um, what, close to 100 years now? You take money from someone, that means you owe them. Period. Mrs. Clinton tried to deflect it, but you can't get around that fact. You take money from someone, you owe them. And Mrs. Clinton's taken money from Wall Street, big telecom, the oil companies, defense contractors, you name it, all the fat cats. They're the ones funding her. Well, Sanders isn't funded like that. In his case, it's pretty much small contributions from a lot of individuals. So he really doesn't owe those big money folks. To me, that's a really good thing. Uh, We'll put it in New York terms. Not owing the mafia is a really good thing in my book. Now, the other concern I have about Mrs. Clinton is uh, rather more personal. I'm talking about what happened in 2008 during her primary campaign against Barack Obama. Unfortunately, she and her supporters got racial. Yep, they did. And I remember it. I mean, even she herself insinuated that the only really hard-working Americans are white Americans. Y'all remember that? I sure do. My dad sure did. And both she and her husband defended this at the time. Ouch. Sadly, this wasn't limited to just her. The anti-black sentiment extended to her supporters as well. At that time, 
I was working for one of the, the bigger school systems in the country. Predominant demographic in schools uh, among the staff members is white female, generally Democrat and feminist. I will not repeat the statements I heard about then-Senator Barack Obama, but I can tell you they were pretty nasty. They all but used the N-word. Seriously, I couldn't believe my own ears. And, and folks, I'm going to say something. I could have gone to HR on them, human resources on them several times, on several occasions, if I'd chosen to. So how did I hear all of what they were saying? How did I even get to hear those comments that I won't repeat? They're not fit for repetition here. How do I even get to hear them? Remember, folks, I'm not all that dark-skinned. So, I don't know, I guess these folks thought they were in quote-unquote safe territory to say things like that. And these were all self-described Hillary voters. Same folks who jumped ship when when, uh, then-Senator Obama won that primary and formed the, uh, and I quote, Party Unity My Ass, or Puma Group. Close quote. They actually jumped onto Senator John McCain's campaign as, and and I quote again, an act of gender solidarity. Yeah, this was in June before Sarah Palin was ever announced as uh, Senator McCain's running mate. They totally ignored the other woman running, Cynthia McKinney. You'd think they wouldn't if this was a you know a protest vote in support of gender solidarity. Well, Google for Cynthia McKinney if you wonder how that could happen. And when you see her, I'm sure you'll be able to guess why she didn't get that support. I have several black female acquaintances, as you might guess. To a woman, they all told me a similar story. Here's how it goes. They'd be hanging out with their white female friends, and the subject of discrimination would come up. Women face discrimination, the conversation would go, which is true. You know, they do. I don't argue that. Well, the black woman would then also bring up the racial discrimination that she experienced, sometimes by white females. The white woman there would immediately poo-poo the black woman's account as, oh, well, don't be so overly sensitive, and uh, you're just reading that into it, and, you know, dismissive statements like that. They just tune out their black female, uh, quote-unquote, friend. Guess they didn't consider her that much of a friend after all, huh? Totally boxed her out of the conversation from that point forward. I was talking with one black woman in her 30s uh, recently. She actually had tears running down out of her eyes when she was telling me this. Last year. Yeah, last year in Seattle. You know who you are, and you're not the only one. Sure enough, these white females were self-described Hillary Clinton supporters too. You know, it's like they demand support from black women to issues, you know, in issues of sex but they refuse to support those same black women in issues of race. You know, what's up with that? Okay, let's jump back to 2008 for just a moment. We're, we're leaving 2015. We're going back to 2008 for just a moment. During Nevada's Democratic primary, I happened to be out visiting my dad that week. So when he went to go vote, I went with him, you know, just to you know, hang out with dad. Hey, well, after all, he's my dad, right? Well, when we got there, the looks of hate and I'm not kidding, that we saw from white women at that primary, that Democratic primary, were, well, you would have needed a chainsaw to cut the tension they were giving us. Yeah, it was that thick the tension was. Now, my dad's darker skinned than I am. Folks, we all know when people just don't want you there, and, and they don't even have to say anything verbal to, you know, to let you know that. That's what we both felt. 
Of course, that didn't stop Dad from voting one bit. <laughs> Matter of fact, it hardened his resolve to vote. Now, that, that during that same period of time, I couldn't believe what, you know, Geraldine Ferraro, you know, a supporter of Mrs. Clinton and former vice presidential candidate herself, um, you know, Mondell Ferraro. I can't believe what she said about Obama. He was only getting support, and I quote, because he's black, and I and close quote. And then when she got challenged on that, she went on to, I don't know, somehow play the victim and say she was being somehow attacked, and I quote, because I'm white. It only got worse from there. Ouch. So it's not just Mrs. Clinton, not just Mrs. Clinton herself. It's also who and what she represents. That would be the white feminist wing of the party. And over the last 25 years, you know, basically most of my adult life, um, that wing has shown itself to be females only. Um, used to be whites only when I was in college, but now it seems like it's just anybody but blacks, both racist and misandrist. Sad. But apparently true. So given all that, I'm pretty astonished that black people would be supporting Mrs. Clinton this time around. Given all that, I got to ask, what of hers, of her own, has Mrs. Clinton given up in support of people like my dad or my black sisters? She ever been arrested? She ever put her neck on the line like that in you know, support of people like my dad or his side of the family? I'm not aware that she has. You're quite the opposite, actually. She's led a pretty, you know, pretty much a privileged life from everything I can tell. And that's another big reason why I'm feeling the burn. Turns out, Senator Sanders did get arrested in support of ending racial discrimination. You know, this was in Chicago during the 1960s. It's now, you know, fairly public knowledge now that these pictures have come out. Well, in this neighborhood. The neighbors were protesting against what basically amounted to a blacks-only school uh, made out of the, this old, dilapidated warehouse. Oh, we'll convert this into a school, the, the district officials said back then. Yeah, okay. Meanwhile, things were being arranged so that the white kids wouldn't have to attend this uh, school. Hmm, interesting. Oh, I would add that this proposed school was right next to some wide-open railroad tracks. No guy rails, no nothing. Yeah, huh, nothing unsafe there. Well, the parents saw that, didn't like it. There was a lion in protest of this from the black residents. They lay down on the street like you see in the lion protests nowadays, too. These parents wanted their kids to attend not just a safe school, but a truly desegregated school, too. They wanted that as well. Y'all remember Brown versus Board of Education, right? You've read about that. Well, that already settled things in the courts. And black parents just wanted the same shot at a good education for their kids as white families had. <laughs> Makes sense to me. Turns out, four people got arrested during this, this lion protest. One of them was a 21-year-old college kid. Young white fella. Which, as you've probably figured out by now, was named Bernard Sanders. Yeah. He's going to the University of Chicago at the time. Young college kid. There are pictures of the police dragging young Bernard off. Now, along with three other people, he was jailed, cited, fined $25, which back in 1963 was a nice change of money. Nice piece of money. And then he was released. 
Never have I heard of Bernard Sanders or his supporters acting anything like Mrs. Clinton or her supporters did when it comes to either half of my family. Not even once. And that's why, folks, I'm feeling the burn. And now you know why, for me, it's kind of personal. There's also his actual voting record on Second Amendment issues. I know, he supported the gun lobby! We hear that all the time. Well, no, he actually supported the Second Amendment in common sense. That's what he supported. Folks, I see no more reason to sue gun manufacturers for Sandy Hook than I see reason to sue car manufacturers for drunk drivers. Ford, Chevy, you know, Chrysler, or General Motors, rather, and Chrysler didn't compel that person to get stupid and drive drunk and kill people. They didn't do that. The drunk driver made that decision. Likewise, you know, Colt, Winchester, Ruger, they've never compelled someone to get stupid and shoot up a school and kill people either. Yeah, you might as well sue Ginsu for any assaults with knives. So, New Yorkers, you have a choice tomorrow. Californians, you will have a similar choice coming up pretty soon, too. Make it a good one. We'll be back. We're back. We were just talking about the Democratic debate in New York this last Friday. I mentioned why I was feeling the burn, and one of those reasons was his mostly pro-Second Amendment record. Since I am a pro-Second Amendment liberal, well, that kind of matters a lot to me. <laughs> the Second Amendment, folks, is not, is, is not there for hunting or sport like some of the politicians like to say. Nope. Uh-uh. Rather, it's like any survivor of Tiananmen Square will tell you. It's the last defense against government officials gone wrong. The last defense against tyranny. We've talked about that before. And we will continue doing so because it matters. And that's why I became a member of the M1 Grand Owners Club of late. Yeah, okay, Cowboy T, you're pro-gun, sure. You got a Mosin, that's a gun, right? So why an M1 Grand? I mean, come on, it's old, obsolete outdated, a relic of a bygone era, a weapon of war, all that stuff, right? <laughs> Old rifle like that, probably, I don't know, minute of barn, let alone barn door. Um, you know, like the old muskets during the Revolutionary War. You know the deal. Don't shoot till you see the whites of their eyes. Because of how inaccurate those muskets were. <laughs> so who care about these old things, these M1 Garands? I mean, who care? Well, if you're thinking that, then that's probably because you haven't had the, ch the, the, the chance to shoot one yet. <laughs> well, I have. Got to tell you, I wasn't all too hot on them either at first. I was like, yeah, it's just like the AR-15 craze. You know, it's the in thing. You know, I like what I like. I'm not into the trendy stuff, folks, especially considering what a grand costs nowadays. Yeah, I know, I know. The rifle that won World War II and all that. But so what? 
You know, that's just panache, you know, bragging rights with your buddies. Personally, I don't give a rip about any of that. So, for that reason, I just passed on M1 Garands, you know, for years. Big whoop. That was until the Civilian Marksmanship Program, also known as the CMP, started offering the Armorer's Course. They call it the Advanced Maintenance Class, and you learn how to completely, and I mean completely, take apart and build from scratch a complete rifle. I mean every little part, folks. The pins, the springs, the barrel, the finish chambering, the sights, all that stuff. That's what the class teaches you. And in so doing, well, you learn the general operation of all semi-automatic rifles. Remember, a lot of them are based on the M1 Garand in some way. And yep, that does include the AK-47 and the AR-15. You look at Mikhail Kalashnikov's design for the AK series, one of the most reliable uh, assault rifles on the planet. And it uses a very similar gas piston system. The M14 battle rifle, known as the M1A today and its semi-automatic guys, uh, that's just a somewhat refined M1 Garand for the 308 Winchester. Remember that the Garand is the very first semi-automatic main battle rifle ever issued to an Army's General Infantry. The Axis powers hated this rifle. Why? Because U.S. troops who had them could make more accurate sh- could make more accurate shots more quickly than the enemy could. With their, you know, than the enemy could. You know, they they had their bolt-action Mausers and Arisakas and that sort of thing. Uh, a semi-automatic battle rifle, main battle rifle, was definitely an advantage in combat back then. Today, the Antis would probably call an M1 Garand an assault weapon. Yeah, wouldn't put it past them. So that's really what got me to look at the Garand, finally. I wanted to know how these semi-automatic rifles tick, generally. And boy, oh boy, was that ever accomplished. Folks, I learned a lot. And I recommend anyone go take the class if you can. Sign up for it and hope that you hit the lottery, in the, the, the selection lottery, that is, and get a slot in this class. It's not cheap, but yeah, it's worth it. Not only do you walk out with your very own rifle that you built yourself, but you walk out of there armed with more than just a rifle. You also walk out of there armed with lots of really good information on how to keep it in top working order. Uh, that matters just as much, folks. You get to know your rifle from start to finish, top to bottom. Oh, and while I was there at the CMP store, by the way, and while you're there, you've got to visit the CMP store, duh, I saw a few rifles there on the racks. Seems Garands have gotten pretty popular over the last five years, so you know, ain't too much on the racks anymore. But I did see some uh, rack-grade rifles. That's the lowest grade of the safely shootable ones. To my surprise, you know, I was expecting, you know, dilapidated, you know, cracks all over through the stock, you know, pitting and rust everywhere. Nuh-uh. To my utter surprise, rack grade actually looks pretty decent. It's actually in pretty decent condition. What the CMP considers its low, quote-unquote lowest grade actually makes a pretty good shooter. So the CMP standards are obviously pretty high, even at their so-called low end. I was surprised. And what that means is this. For $560, including shipping, you can get a semi-automatic 30-06 rifle in pretty decent condition that's ready to go, shipped right to your front door. No FFLs. 
They do the background check there at the CMP, so you are background checked. And after that happens, it gets shipped to your door. The CMP has a special legislative authority to be able to, be able to do that. Now, let's compare that, you know, that price, that $560 rack grade, to a modern semi-automatic uh, rifle's uh, a chamber for similar cartridges. Yeah, take a look at an AR-10, um, also known as the LR-308, depending on the manufacturer. Well, no matter what you call it, it's chamber for the 308 Winchester cartridge, and it's an Armalite platform. It's going to run you about $1,000 at current prices. This is without any of the bells and whistles, basically just a flat-top Picatinny rail. It's a good basic rifle that does the job. Let's look at a PTR-91. That's the modern, American-made version of the Setme, or the HK-91. You're looking at $1,200 minimum for one of those. Oh, but Cowboy T, those can take 20-round magazines. M1 Garands can't do that. True, got a point. So let's look at something a little closer to a Garands capacity. Turns out Remington provides that example. They came out with a line of semi-automatic hunting rifles, the Model 740, then the Model 742, then the 7400, and now the 750. I'm not sure if the 750 is still made, but it was up until recently. Well, whatever the numerical designation, they've always been chambered in several cartridges, including the 30-06. Traditionally, they've been able to hold up to four rounds, though I understand that the last version, the 750, um, actually has a 10-rounder available as well. You go look on the used gun market. These things started about $500 for the original 740, and they go up from there. That's the used gun market. Brand new, they'd be more than that, of course. And it should be noted that the 740 and the 742 were known to have some reliability issues, hence the revisions over the years. Now, I've looked at and shot a rack-grade M1 Garand. That's the $560 one with shipping. I'll be doggone if this old warhorse didn't, you know, doesn't shoot just as well as Remington's um, line of semi-auto 30-06 hunting guns. Oh, by the way, that same precaution about using hotter loads in the Garand also applies to Remington's uh, civilian hunting guns. I'm not talking about the Model 700 bolt action. I mean only the semi-automatics here. Basically, if you want your 740, 742, 7400, or 750 to actually last a decent amount of time, you better be using M1 Garand spec loads in them. So, given that comparison, $500 and up for a well-used Model 740 versus $560 for an M1 Garand that shoots just as well, well, I got to say the Garand's looking like a you know, pretty good bargain here, folks. Let's take the next grade of Garand, the field grade. That's $630. Again, compare that against a, a Remington 7400 in similar condition, and you've got a bargain by comparison. Then there's service grade. Those are $730. These rifles are actually in very good condition. Remarkably good condition. You know, we're still below LR308 territory here in price. Service grade Garands shoot pretty darn well. <laughs> Ask me how I know that. Yeah, I got to have some fun while I was down there in Alabama. Oh, yeah. So, even just looking at a semi-automatic 30-06 rifle for hunting... The Grand is actually looking pretty good. The one thing you've got to be careful of is to use Grand-friendly loads. The action, a Grand's action is actually really strong. It's like a Remington 700 that way. You're not going to blow the bolt up. They're front-locking lugs just like any you know, typical bolt-action rifle made today. The Remington 700, the Savage Model 110, all those things. Winchester 70. 
The concern on a Garand is the operating rod, also known as the op rod for the gas system. If your loads are too hot, then over time, that op rod can be bent out of specs. Op rods, unfortunately, have gotten pretty expensive since they're not made anymore. I wish somebody would make them. Well, fortunately, bending your op rod is pretty darn easy to avoid. Yeah, it is. If you're a hand loader, well, just load Garand-friendly loads. Stick with your 150 to 175 grain Game Kings, Match Kings, interlocks, partitions, whatever. You know, Botel hollow points. And you'll be just fine. 150 to 175 grains and you're fine. Personally, I shoot a 150 grain Hornady full metal jacket out of mine with a Garand friendly, uh, Garand friendly rather, charge of Ball C2, BLC2. Any decent reloader's book will show you these loads. And uh, also, good load information's all over the internet for Garands. Now, matter of fact, today's 308 Winchester is about the same power as the original military loading of 30-06 back in the old days. That said, if you really would like to use hotter loads in your Garand, your Garand will take it just fine. All you got to do is get the adjustable gas plug, and you'll be good to go. Uh, the bolt will handle it fine. The receiver will handle it fine. Even the armorers at the CMP tell, uh, tell us that these, these adjustable gas plugs, they do a good job. But what about recoil, Cowboy T? It's still a 30-06, and a 30-06 is not wimpy. How will it deal with my shoulder? Is it going to hurt my shoulder? <laughs> we'll talk about recoil of these raffles upon our return from the break. Stick around. We're back, and we're talking M1 Garands. The question of recoil always comes up when we're talking about, you know, full-power rifle cartridges. I'm talking 308 Winchester, 7.62x54R Russian, 30-06, 7.65x53 Argentine Mauser, the 7mm, the 7.7, rather, millimeter Arisaka, all those. The M1 Garand is chambered in one of those, 30 6 the 30-06 cartridge is known to be strong enough to take down big bears. So what'll that kind of power do to your shoulder? Well, out of an M1 Garand, the answer surprised me. I told you I had the chance to testify at my brand spanking new Garand at the CMP's range there in Alabama. I also got to shoot it here at home just last week. Yeah, much more extensively too. Last week was my rifle's first real uh, inauguration, you might say. And to celebrate this occasion, I decided to invite a couple of women with me to enjoy some marksmanship. Uh-huh, I did this with a purpose in mind. One of them was Miss BHC. The other is a young college kid in her 20s who also likes firearms. Now, she'd used 12-gauge shotguns several times before, so she's well aware of recoil, and she can certainly handle it. If she can take a 12-gauge, I figure she's going to be able to take uh, a 30-06. My bigger concern was Miss BHC, actually. So we get there, we unpack everything, we get the clips loaded, and I show them how to load this rifle, how to fire it, 
and they acknowledge that the M1 is pretty loud. Of course, I took the first couple of clips. Well, of course it's loud. It's a .30-06 cartridge. Anyone who's fired AR-15s before knows that semi-automatic rifles can get pretty loud. The Grand is no exception. What they found remarkable was how little my shoulder moved when I pulled the trigger. So, Miss BHC decided to try it immediately after I did. Well, she didn't have a lot of bulky clothing, and the Grand does have a metal butt plate, just like a Mosin does. So, uh, not exactly a lot of cushion there. She pulls the trigger. Bang! She likes it. She pulls the trigger again. Bang! This shoe-polish-eaten grin smile just creeps across her face. The rifle's there. She notices it, but it's not kicking her shoulder very hard at all. She finishes the whole clip of eight rounds with no incident. Then our young guest gets behind the trigger. Turns out she's left-eye dominant and also left-handed, even though she typically has shot right-handed. Well, shooting right-handed and using the left eye on a long gun, like the Garand, was making her crane her neck in a way that really looked painful, folks, so I showed her how to shoot the rifle left-handed. I can do it. I'm also left-eye dominant, by the way. Felt a little weird to her at first because she'd never done that and she wasn't used to it. But she quickly got accustomed to it, and the next thing you know, she's on the paper. Bang, 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 ping! <laughs> she, too, noticed that the Garand didn't have as much recoil as she expected. After she picked up the clip that had, of course, ejected after the eighth shot. Yeah, not as much recoil as she had, she had anticipated. Now, she was wearing just a t-shirt, nothing more. That was the only thing between that metal butt plate and her skin, so basically no padding. At the end of the shooting day, yeah, she said, yeah, I could feel it a little bit. But she also said that it wasn't that much. Not really. Both women, notably, said that they probably could have shot a lot more if we'd had more range time available. God, I wish we'd had more range time available. That thing is fun. Well... I also decided to have them try my rack-grade M1 Garand. <laughs> this is after the one that I built. Remember I remember before when I said that rack-grade Garands are pretty good bargains? Well, you know, I was there at the CMP store anyway. I had to do my part for the economy and all. <laughs> so I also brought this other Garand along with the one that I built. They tried it too. Um, that's, by the way, how we know that rack-grade Garands are pretty decent shooters. They like this rifle as well. Oh, yeah. Now, the ammo we were using was Federal's American Eagle for M1 Garand use. This is a 150 full metal jacket, excuse me, 150 grain full metal jacket load, essentially the original military loading. I got a box of it right here. Out of the Garand's 24-inch barrel, the listed velocity is uh, 2,740 feet per second. Now, if that sounds familiar to some of you, well, there's a reason. That's because this is about the same ballistics as today's 7.62 51mm NATO round, also known as the 308 Winchester. In other words, you don't want to get hit by one of these. <laughs> now, one thing you do need to be careful of when loading your Garand, 
or dry firing it for that matter, is a little something called M1 Thumb. It is known uh, less affectionately by some other terms. I hear there are two kinds of Garand shooters. <laughs> you know, those, those who've gotten M1 Thumb and those who will. Right now, I'm part of the latter group. Hasn't happened yet, thank goodness. So, when you load up your clip full of ammo, you do need to hold back the bolt from slamming forward. If you don't, and that thing slams shut on your thumb, well, you obviously won't die or anything, but you probably will, um, shall we say, expand your vocabulary a bit. <laughs> now, remember that the United States loaned grants to several of our foreign allies, you know, like Greece, South Korea, and other places. So I'm sure that vocabulary has been expanded in quite a few languages over the decades. <laughs> the armorers at the CMP class showed us how to avoid M1 thumb, and I, have, I do follow that practice rather religiously. Oh, uh, just so you know, neither of the ladies with me that evening got M1 thumb either. I wasn't about to let that happen. And speaking of dry firing, yes, I do dry fire my Garand on a regular basis, actually both of them. There's nothing at all wrong with doing so. It doesn't hurt the rifle one bit. And indeed, it'll help you get more familiar with how your rifle operates. Also has the side benefit of helping to smooth out the working parts over time. So, now I have what you might consider, quote-unquote, opposing sides when it comes to wartime battle rifles. I've had the Mosin Nagant for several years now. I've told you about that. And now I've got its opponent, the U.S. rifle caliber 30 M1 to go with it. Just seems fitting, you know. Both rifles were originally designed and used to defend their respective countries of invention. The Finnish used their Mosnagants to defend themselves from Stalin's Soviet army, very successfully, I might add. The Russians themselves used their Mosnagants to defend themselves from Hitler's Nazi German army. And the M1 Garand was used all the way up to the beginning of Vietnam. I should point out one more little fact about the Garand that I learned down in Alabama. The CMP has several rifles that they consider very special. I will describe one of these to you. This rifle, made back in the day by International Harvester during the war, was captured in Afghanistan from a Taliban fighter. This was, this was within just the last few years, by the way. And this is the year 2016. That means this wasn't that long ago. Our boys obviously were successful in defeating the enemy that day because they brought back the rifle, too. They realized what it was and brought it back home, obviously through official legal channels. It is now at the CMP's armory in Anniston. I saw this rifle and actually got to hold it for a moment. Think about that, folks. The Taliban was using one of our own rifles, the rifle that won World War II, to fight against and kill our own American troops. Well, that rifle is now back home in the United States where it belongs. And that Taliban fighter got his just desserts for even daring to use our rifle against us. Especially one with a history like the Garand. Nervous some people, huh? 
Well, <laughs> you won't be doing that ever again. But it does illustrate what I just told you, just how durable the Garand is. And yes, that rifle is in perfect working order. So much for obsolete, huh? They seem to work just as well today as they did back then. I sure wouldn't want to get hit by one. And I kind of doubt you'd want to either. <laughs> General Patton described this rifle as the greatest battle implement ever devised. Back then, he was certainly right about that. There really was nothing better at the time. It was a cutting-edge rifle. Oh, sure, technology marches on. Now we've got lighter rifles with scopes, with 20-plus round magazines, 30-plus round magazines, beta magazines with the, the, the dual drums, Picatinny rails on top of Picatinny rails, all that good stuff. And all that's cool. There's nothing wrong with it. I do like today's rifles. But that doesn't mean that the M1 Garand is uh, obsolete. Oh, no. Uh-uh. You go watch the matches at either Camp Perry or Talladega, and you'll walk away with your mind changed about that, but quick. People regularly shoot these Garands out to 600 yards at the Talladega range. I've seen that range. It's gorgeous. It's beautiful. Everybody should shoot at it at least once. I assure you, folks, ain't nothing obsolete about a semi-automatic battle rifle that can shoot out to 600 and do it under just about any battlefield conditions, just like they did back in the wars. Ah, uh, no, not obsolete at all. Not now that I've seen what a Garand can do, up close and personal. Imagine that, folks. A rifle designed from the mid-1930s that still gets the job done today, in 2016, that you can shoot all day without hurting your shoulder. Oh, and by the way, you're effective out past 800 yards if you do your part. Remember, this is a 30 out 6 we're talking about here. It and the 308 can reach out that far and actually be effective. So, is the Garand still the greatest battle implement ever devised? Well, whether that's true or not, it's still just as good as it's always been. So, don't underestimate it either. I sure won't. This is far from the last time I'll be enjoying this old warhorse. <laughs> far from it. <laughs> this is only the beginning. And this is Cowboy T signing off. Until next time. Till then, safe shooting. Practice often. Do your duty at the ballot box, including at the primary elections. And thanks for listening.